Well, hi, everybody. Thank you for coming to our morning session. I'll just briefly introduce myself. So I work in the uh, Division of Pain Medicine in the Department of Anesthesiology at Stanford. So my background is actually as an anesthesiologist, pain specialist, and a clinical epidemiologist. So here are our disclosures. We're going to be going through a lot of slides today, so I'm going to try not to read everything just to give a broad overview of our topic. So I'd like to start off with this slide because it really illustrates the whole of the opioid crisis, which is actually three parts. If we look closely at this purple line, this is prescription opioids, namely things like oxycodone and hydrocodone. Then you see probably around 2012, this blue line, that represents heroin overdose deaths. You see that that starts to slowly up. And then the most concerning curve is that orange line. That's the other synthetic opioids overdose deaths. So this category involves things like fentanyl, illicit fentanyl derivatives, carfentanil, etc. So just another way to phrase it, so there have been three waves in the opioid crisis. So first prescription opioids, so we have focused a lot of our efforts there, still remains a problem. You can see where that purple line is. And then we saw an uptake in heroin deaths, and then most recently, the illicits. And we see this in law enforcement as well the number of law enforcement encounters where substances are testing positive for fentanyl, illicit fentanyl, has sharply increased. And this little diagram on the right shows you how easy it is if you have this precursor product, which is not really widely regulated in countries such as China and Mexico. It's really easy to take about $87 street value worth of this NPP and then turn it into an illicit fentanyl that's going to sell for about $800,000 on the black market. And here, particularly fentanyl. So fentanyl is not the heroin of the 70s. So I'm very familiar with this as an anesthesiologist. We use this often in the induction for putting people to sleep before they have their surgery. And there are derivatives like carfentanil that are a thousand times more potent than morphine. So you can imagine if somebody is used to using heroin, hasn't used it for a long time, maybe has a relapse, and then ends up having a, a dose of illicit fentanyl or stronger derivatives, that they're highly likely to have an overdose event, whether intentional or unintentional. And here is just a little uh, popular press article just showing uh, how serious this opioid crisis is and that there are particular geographic clusters that have been hard hit. And we see that the illicit crisis is, is moving across the country east to west. So in terms of the legislation that's being introduced into Congress, so our lawmakers are aware that this is a problem and we're seeing a lot of reactions, a lot of bills being prescribed. And here we are as providers. Our main interest is to our patient to make sure that they're the center of their, our attention and that they're getting the optimal pain management that they deserve. But really, in this constant state of changing policy, we really have to stay abreast of you know, what's coming down the pipeline. I uh, put up the second bullet point here. Uh, that part of this bill is to incentivize post-surgical injections as a pain treatment alternative to opioids by re reversing a basically a reimbursement cut. So we are seeing some potentially good changes coming down the road for us. Also with this bill, HR 4275, empowering pharmacists in the fight against opioid abuse act. We see that more and more frontline practitioners are going to be part of the fight to make sure that patients are being prescribed their opioids appropriately and serve as a safety check. So if you're not already familiar, um, this is the 2019 Medicare Advantage um, and Call Letter. This was released in April of 2018. There's several components to make sure that opioids are being prescribed safely. If patients are opioid naive, uh, they say to limit the initial do uh, doser of the prescription to about seven day supply. There's also some um, safety edits they suggest for high risk opioid users. I think what is uh, particularly interesting is that they have now introduced a hard safety stop at 90 oral milligram morphine equivalents per day 
for the pharmacist. So if a pharmacist does see a prescription at this dose that they are supposed to confirm, call the provider who did the prescription, also record their conversation, and then move forward with the prescribing. So we're seeing that more people will be involved in the process of prescribing opioids. But in all of this, we want to make sure that we're not creating disparity. We can see that if we have patients who have been taking opioids for a long time, that this, this, these kind of changes could be very problematic to them. So I just wanted to show you this diagram of what are the laws setting limits on opioid prescriptions across the strait? Uh, I live in California, so we don't really have anything yet, but even this map is changing. For example, in Tennessee, I think they have maybe a three or seven day initial opioid prescribing limit, and then there is some confusion on in terms of where these limits are being set. Is this in the acute pain setting? Are we excluding patients with cancer pain or palliative care? So I definitely urge you to make sure um, you stay abreast of the news in terms of the legislation in your state, and I'm sure you would hear about it. But I'm just going to give kind of a broad swath of what is the state legislation, what is that looking like in summary across the states right now. So most states limit legislation uh, to a certain number of days, most commonly seven days of initial opioid prescribing for acute pain, or three, five, or 14 days. Uh, in a few states, states are also uh, setting limits on the total milligram morphine equivalents. And nearly half of the states do specify that they, these opioid prescribing limits apply to acute pain. And there are exceptions for chronic pain treatment, sometimes cancer pain, palliative care, uh, medication-assisted therapy, or provider judgment. So it is important to know that a lot of these laws do stipulate that the exceptions have to be documented in the patient's medical record. So definitely an extra step for, for us, and we need to keep aware of what is going on in, in our particular locations. So this is pretty difficult. We have to now balance our opioid prescribing, considering all of the indications that would go into warranting uh, prescribing of prescription opioids. One of the problems that we're seeing in our state is that a lot of providers are saying, hey, I just don't even want to deal with this anymore, and uh, let's, let's just send these patients who use opioids to our pain doctors. But we all know that there's just not enough pain doctors to treat all of the patients that need to come into our clinics. And I think it's wonderful. That's why you guys are here learning more about uh, pain management in general. So we all know the main fatality, the reason why patients die or overdose from opioids is the opioid-induced respiratory depression. And so it's usually a cycle of hypoxia elevated blood CO2, and ultimately cardiorespiratory arrest. So that's kind of the, the sequence of events, and it's highly potentiated by other medical conditions, pulmonary disease, benzodiazepines. One thing I wanted to put in a plug for is uh, how many of you folks actually have access to naloxone or, or carry naloxone in your pockets? Wonderful. Did you guys know that it's widely available in almost every state uh, at every Walgreens and CVS now? There are a few exceptions. So without even a prescription, you can just simply tell your patient if they are at risk, and then you could document, hey, I did mention that they could pick up a naloxone. Uh, ideally, they would be picking up the intranasal, which is going to be a lot cheaper than the subcutaneous formulation. So let's talk about risk factors for a prescription opioid overdose, specifically amongst Medicaid beneficiaries. And so we see that our things like CDC guidelines really do follow the data. One of the biggest risks is uh, patients who are using another opioid and then transition to methadone use. So when we have that case scenario, we want to really pay attention to that patient, especially in the initial weeks as they're transitioning, that we uh, don't have an accidental overdose event. And you see a few other risk factors, the total oral morphine equivalent daily dose, um, drug or alcohol abuse history, psychiatric uh, mental health issues, concurrent benzodiazepine use, or use of multiple pharmacies to fill their prescriptions. And what about overdose deaths and chronic pain? We see that uh, when we look at overdose decedents, that about 60% of them had a chronic non-cancer pain diagnosis in the last year of their life. 
And then only, contrast this with only 4% of them actually had a formal diagnosis of opioid use disorder. So it's a lot more likely that a patient with a chronic non-cancer pain diagnosis may die versus one that has actually been diagnosed with their OUD. Um, and those with chronic pain were more likely to have filled an opioid and a benzodiazepine prescription in the last 30 days of life. So we know with prescription opioids, there is a strong link with mental health. There's increased rates of substance use and depression that exist in long-term prescription opioid users compared to non-users who choose to treat their chronic pain uh, with non-opioid modalities. And depression and anxiety definitely contribute to substance use disorder development amongst long-term opioid users. If we look at um, prescription uh, patterns and the ways that patients become long-term opioid users, we see that about a 5% conversion rate from a first fill to long-term use. And so what predicts that risk of a patient transitioning to long-term use? That's going to be increasing number of refills and cumulative higher milligram morphine equivalent doses during the very first month uh, before they started to initiate their use. So what are our careful take-home points from all of this data? How do we practice evidence-based medicine? We want to carefully prescribe our long-acting opioids, really take a minute to say, is that warranted that the patient should transition, for example, from oxycodone to oxycontin, limit the number of refills, and really try to curb the overall dosage that you are prescribing with, um, with every prescription. So what is the problem with chronic use? So we think that this is what's going on, that it may precipitate some opioid misuse in certain individuals. It may transition to a full-blown opioid use disorder addiction picture. But really, you may say, okay, well, what is the big deal with opioid misuse? So I like this study from Banerjee and colleagues. This was a study of about 3,400 veterans in the Veterans Aging Cohort Study. And in a nutshell, what they found is that non-medical use, so opioid misuse, was independently and positively associated with heroin initiation. So now this study is showing the link between opioid misuse and the transition to illicit heroin, potentially illicit fentanyl. So something to, to really take seriously if we're able to catch that with our patients. In terms of opioid tapering in the chronic pain literature, some things to add into your conversation if you're having that difficult time convincing your patient that this is the way to go is that there's a lot of uh, literature now in terms of in the context of functional restoration, in the context of uh, ongoing behavioral therapy, pain psychology, that patients actually do better. Their pain reduces, their mood improves, they're able to come down on their doses of opioids. But again, this is most of the data is in patients who are voluntarily agreeing to these circumstances. So in terms of what are our guidelines for opioid therapy, you've probably had other lectures where you've gone over indications for opioid prescribing, um, but we always want to be assessing risks, benefits, and having that thorough discussion before we initiate. We want to start with short-term doses uh, with the understanding that this isn't going to be a, a continuous forever thing. Uh, we have guidelines from professional societies. This is from APS, AAPM. Um, and here are some few pointers from, from their guidelines. They say clinicians should evaluate patients engaging in aberrant behaviors for whether or not they need their ongoing chronic opioid therapy or whether they should be restructured on their opioid therapy. And what does that restructuring look like? Maybe that would be more frequent visits, shorter durations of prescription fills, referral to psychological treatments, or consideration of other non-opioid therapies. And they do say, you know, if patients continue to engage in this aberrant behavior that they may need to be uh, involuntarily tapered, but we don't have a lot of evidence base for that context. And opioid tapering definitely can occur in either outpatient or inpatient settings. We do have an out outpatient setting as well as inpatient, inpatient setting at Stanford. Um, and patients, what we usually tell people are, you know, try to wean your opioids as an outpatient first. And then if we hit a barrier that maybe they need that more resource-intensive version. But the goal, the hope is that most patients will be able to taper slowly with their providers.
In terms of the actual mechanics of the dosage taper, this is not very evidence-based. This is kind of more expert opinion-based. So they do say 10% dose reductions weekly or uh, 25 to 50% every few days. Uh, one of the main messages is if you're above a certain dose, they say 60 to 80 to 80 milligram morphine equivalents per day, that the opioid tapering can be initially very rapid. And that's because you have just an overall tissue saturation of all your tissue compartments of opioids, especially if somebody has been on opioids for a long, long time. So even if we take away the opioids externally and they stop getting them administered, now all of those tissues are starting to leach the opioid back into the bloodstream. So you can think of the patient as a time-release capsule. So a lot of times you may not see those opioid withdrawal symptoms right away, even though you've taken the opioids away. So we can, we can lower those doses rapidly just knowing that the tail end, when we get towards the bottom, we really do want to slow down because we do expect to see some withdrawal symptoms. In terms of some useful tools for monitoring, so there is the SOAP-R, the Screener and Opioid Assessment for Patients with Pain Revised. So this is a useful tool for predicting the likelihood of aberrant drug behaviors. This is something you could implement. Uh, an older tool would be the opioid risk tool with a maximum score of 26. You can see kind of the questions below here. Um, initially, it was validated in a chronic pain sample, but um, subsequent studies haven't been able to really show the, the disparate scoring in the chronic pain population. And another useful tool is the current opioid misuse measure. So if you want to pick up uh, actual episodes of opioid misuse, this tool can be helpful. In terms of a few other society guidelines, so this is from the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians. One thing I wanted to point out is they mentioned some supplementary medications you could use for tapering, like using uh, clonidine while patients are going through their withdrawal symptoms. Um, they also mentioned non-opioid adjuvant treatment. So there is a little bit of literature about using things like antineuropathics or gabapentin to help treat uh, withdrawal symptoms as well when patients are being tapered. That's in the addiction sphere. And finally, you guys are probably super familiar with the CDC guidelines, the indications for opioid therapy. Again, this is reiterating the concept of we're starting these opioids, but we're going to continue to reassess the need for them if they are, if you are responsive to these medications, if we need to take them away. In terms of indications for opioid discontinuation or tapering, this is echoing the earlier society guidelines. No improvements in pain and function. High-risk regimens if patients are taking opioids concurrently with high-dose benzos. Uh, if patients don't think that the opioids are helping, we definitely want to get them off of them. Or any type of serious adverse events. Maybe the patient has already had a near-opioid overdose event, and now we have to intervene. This is very similar in terms of the actual mechanics of the tapering. Again, 10 to 50% of the original dose weekly or rapid tapering more over two to three weeks. The CDC does mention that if someone's been on opioids for years and years and years, that it's probably gonna be a very, very slow, gentle taper that we wanna do. Uh, one important population to mention though are pregnant women. So when we get into this scenario, they are at risk if they have opioid withdrawal for a spontaneous abortion or premature labor. So we want to be really careful. Probably would be good to consult with a pain specialist or addiction specialist in this context because of that, of that potential scenario. We want to minimize opioid withdrawal symptoms, uh, discontinue opioids when they're taking less than a day. And uh, they do mention ultra-rapid detoxification has some high risks associated with it. So a little bit of data on what has been studied in the opioid tapering arena. So back uh, before January 2018, there was an impending uh, policy here where patients treated with opioids for chronic pain were going to be asked to be tapered off. And so the authors of this study decided to do some provider outreach, provide some examples for opioid tapering, and, and get providers on board with getting their patients tapered. Well, it wasn't necessarily that affected. Um, about 14% of providers, there was no change in their MEDD dosing, and actually 60% had an increase. And so not necessarily the most effective strategy. 
In terms of uh, voluntary patient-centered opioid tapering, we do see even without behavioral intervention that it is possible to make some reductions in the overall morphine-equivalent daily dose. But the real question is, do we need opioid minimization or complete opioid cessation? And I would say that don't have the evidence base to push patients completely off of their opioids. We have evidence that we can get patients on lower doses. So hopefully we'll have a little bit more information on that as time goes on. So in terms of the conversations, how do we get our patients on board with the opioid tapering? So empathizing with the patient's experience, really communicating that we understand that they're in a difficult situation, especially if they've been on opioids for a long time preparing our patients for opioid tapering, really sitting with them and, and telling them what to expect from week to week, what's the support that we can provide this individual, and um, very precise, individualized implementation of opioid tapering. So really having a back and forth conversation, talking about the person's regimen, not just going in there and saying, um, let's just kind of cut back by a few pills a week and see how you do talking about the supportive guidelines and policies. So talking about kind of the bigger picture of public policy, what's going on in state legislation, just so that the patient is also aware why this is all of a sudden more of an issue. So this is a great systematic review. And overall, this was looking at outcomes after uh, discontinuation or dose reduction of long-term opioid therapy. And they covered 11 randomized trials, mostly 56 observational studies. We found a lot of interventional uh, dis uh, pain programs or behavioral interventions. And the majority of the studies report dose reduction, but discontinuation rates were highly variable and often not the focus of these studies. But overall, the themes were improvements in pain severity, function, and quality of life. So this is definitely stuff that we can cite to our patients. So what are some examples of the behavioral intervention? So this was a four-month interactive voice response intervention versus usual care. And there was, there was some optional opioid dose reduction. So this wasn't even a target of this behavioral intervention, but we saw that there was reduced mean opioid doses at significantly at both four and eight months. Uh, this is another... Uh, behavioral treatment, looking at eight-week group intervention of mindfulness med meditation and cognitive behavioral therapy versus usual care. And they didn't, again, they didn't explicitly encourage opioid dose reduction, but they did see mean changes in opioid daily dosing. So what are the, the future directions for research? We want to really see what are the patient barriers to opioid tapering, um, strategies that we can continue to enhance patient engagement so that they stay on board with whatever behavioral intervention we're offering, less resource-intensive models of opioid tapering so that patients don't necessarily have to go in and see their providers all the time. There's no studies, again, addressing mandatory opioid tapering. So when we get into that uncomfortable situation where we have a couple of positive utoxes, uh, multiple, uh, multiple providers being used for prescription opioid fills, you know, this is a different territory. So this is, this is different than the evidence that I'm citing. Um, and need for long-term surveillance. What happens after we taper opioids? You know, the, the potential scenario is that when you're tapering opioids or once patients have no more opioids, that they lose that provider engagement and perhaps we are seeing higher risks of suicidality. So I would actually argue that any kind of transition, whether there is a transition onto opioids or a transition off of opioids, that th those periods are going to be very critical for us to continue to monitor our patients that we're not necessarily going to be in the clear in terms of their mood or their potential for overdose or suicidality. So what are the keys for patient-provider communication? Um, so that's really hard to see. Um, explaining. So the first box is explaining. So explaining in the context of the patient and in the context of legislation, why specifically for that person do they need to come down on their opioid doses? Negotiating with the patient. So it might feel like a small win for the patient to have some input, but the more input a patient has into their opioid tapering to say, okay, this week I'd rather taper by one pill a day, and you want to do three. But it may be better just to take the one pill a day because then it keeps the patient engaged in the entire process. 
handling difficult conversations. Now, this is the key for all of us. You know, we have those difficult conversations very often with our patients where, you know, we're, we're not on the same page in terms of what we should do with their medications. And finally, the piece that's also important is non-abandonment. So communicating to the patient, regardless of what happens with your opioid medications, I'm still here for you. I still expect to see you. I still think we should keep moving forward with non-opioid strategies for your pain management. So this is a study looking at an MI, Motivational Interviewing-Based Intervention, which I'll cover a little bit. Um, let me see what time it is. Great. Okay, so this was a pilot RCT of a behavioral intervention to help patients taper off their opioids, uh, including concepts of motivational interviewing. So eliciting the patient's history for pain, opioid use, eliciting change talk, so hearing the patient actually express that they want to come off of their opioids, educating them about the opioid health risks. So I like this study for kind of how they piecemeal out the concepts of motivational interviewing that you could also include in your practice, asking the patient, what are your barriers? What, how, have, how have you successfully weaned off your medications in the past? So motivational interviewing is, is widely used in the addiction space and also can be helpful for providers to reduce the degree of burnout with these difficult conversations. It's a very collaborative, goal-oriented style of communication. It does require uh, training and continued practice. And the processes of MI are engaging the patient, agreeing on a, on a particular agenda, evoking that change talk or the motivation to change in this instance it would be to come off of their opioids and planning what is that opioid taper strategy going to look like and here are the the actual tools so uh, we use open-ended questions affirmations of the patient's strengths now I know in a 15-minute visit it's really hard not to get out what you need to say, but sometimes we want to sit back and hear what the patient has to say. A lot of times they're going to mention their own strengths, and we really want to highlight that. We, want, we really want to clap our hands. We want to really ring a bell and say that is wonderful. If a patient is expressing their own uh, strengths, we really want to to capture those moments. And also capturing the commitment, the activation, taking steps, the actual tangible steps towards opioid tapering. So there are a lot of resources on the internet. There's also a motivational interviewing network of trainers uh, where you can get even just an introductory course into these concepts, and I highly urge that um, for the audience today. And these are just a few summary of strategies. I'm going to hand this over to Dr. Prasad. He's going to go into more of the psychological aspects of the opioid tapering conversation. All right, good morning. You know, it's just by pure coincidence that I wore a white shirt today, but I'm thankful that I did because otherwise I'd blend in with the stage and I would just be a disembodied voice talking to you. So um, I'm going to focus more on uh, different behavioral interventions to assist with uh, opioid uh, reduction, opioid cessation. And this is an important piece. I want to I emphasize, you know, as Dr. Ha talked to us about um, opioids and tapering of opioids, a lot of the slides she went over toward the end um, incorporated some of the different behavioral interventions. But it's critically important that we incorporate something when we're helping patients wean off of their opioid medication, if that's a pathway that you're doing. Over the course of time, your patients have come to rely on these medications to help with managing their pain. Now, whether it's effective for them or not, whether it's objectively effective or not, that's a completely different argument. But psychologically, they've come to rely on these drugs. And if you take away this tool that they've used for X number of years, and if you don't give them any other tools, and you just say, well, we're going to wean you off your medications, you're really kind of setting them up for failure, right? It's basically like if I were to take your chair that you're sitting in and say, I'm going to take one of these legs away from you, but I'm not going to put anything else here in, in, in its place, you're not going to want to sit on that chair anymore, right? Now, you could substitute with other medications, but what we find is that using other behavioral interventions can have a longer-term sustainable benefit for patients, and I'm going to talk to you guys about that today. <clears throat> Replacing this with other medications, um, while certainly that may be indicated, focuses more on just a, a biomedical approach to managing their pain, right? What is another drug that we can use that's a non-opioid that might be safer? 
but I'm going to focus more on biopsychosocial modalities, right? And this is where we incorporate uh, looking at the different psychological variables that may be influencing a person's pain, looking at social contextual variables that may be influencing the pain. Because we know that regardless of the cause of a person's pain, all of these different factors influence the intensity and severity of what's going on. So optimum pain management, we know, requires a multidisciplinary effort. Right? It's not going to be any one thing. It's not going to be just behavioral interventions, just PT, just medical care. It's going to be an integration of all these things that helps a patient maximize their gains. Um, certainly, the, uh, the medical care is important. We need to look and see, is there a role for procedures? Uh, does a person need um, surgery? Do they need additional imaging? Is there a role for implantable therapies like stims, pumps, things along those lines? Is there a role for non-opioid therapies? Are people on too much medication? Or are they on too little medication? Are they on the most appropriate medication for their condition? Um, and this is where physicians, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, this is the role that they play in care. Physical rehabilitation is critically important, making sure that people are moving their body appropriately, the parts of the body affected by their pain condition. And this is where the rehab provider, physical therapy, typically fits in. But then we need to make sure that we're addressing the lifestyle factors and psychosocial variables. And this is where psychology tends to fit in. We know, as I was saying before, that regardless of what the core cause of a pain condition is, different substances, different stressors, different emotional states can all influence and intensify that pain. And we need to make sure that we're addressing those things. You know, for example, sleep. You know, this has come up in a lot of the different uh, lectures that I've given. People ask questions about sleep. Sleep is a critical factor in terms of it's a psychosocial variable, or it's, excuse me, it's a lifestyle factor, but it plays a profound role in the experience of pain that a person has. And we need to make sure that we're addressing things such as sleep, activity patterns, um, and not just opioid use, but other substance use. So what I want to do is start by clarifying some of the terms that are often used um, in this domain when we're talking about opioid use disorders and opioid use in general, because a lot of times words get used interchangeably and appropriately so. Um, and so I want to provide just a little bit more clarity on what these terms mean um, so that you guys can make sure that as you're dialoguing with your patients, you're using the correct terminology. So first, tolerance. And I'm going to use all of these and define these in terms of uh, opioid use. So tolerance is where we need more and more of a drug to achieve the same effect. Right? And this is something that can happen with any substance. But in the case of opioid medication, you know, especially when we see people that are on high MEDs of these drugs, they didn't start at that place. Right? They gradually worked their way up, and it was oftentimes due to tolerance, where whatever uh, medication dosing that they had at the start, their bodies basically grew habituated to the analgesic qualities or analgesic effects, and they needed to have more medication to achieve that same degree of analgesia. Now, as a person starts to take more and more medication that's sanctioned by their clinician, and that's demonstrating that tolerance, that's not the same thing as addiction. A lot of patients will say, I'm addicted because they need more of the drug, but tolerance and addiction are not the same thing. Physical dependence is where a person starts to show signs and symptoms of withdrawal when the substance is taken away from them. And here's another place where I see that a lot of patients um, make inappropriate attribution to their medications. We've had a number of patients will come in and say, you know what, I have to take these opiate medications because I've seen what my pain looks like without them, and it's absolutely horrible. Like, Can you tell me more about that? And they'll say, you know, there was, a, there was a month where my pain was really bad. I took more than I should have, and I ran out early for about two weeks. My doctor was out of town. I couldn't get a refill, and so I basically had to stop cold turkey for the last two weeks of the month. And my pain was absolutely horrible, right? And so that's what my pain looks like without opioids. And the reality is, is no, that's what withdrawal looks like, right? That person was experiencing outright withdrawal because they stopped their medications uh, cold turkey. Um, but it's important to realize that what that withdrawal is is physical dependence. Well, when the person stops taking the medication, they have uh, these signs and symptoms, and that's what physical dependence is. But what I think is a little bit more dangerous than physical dependence is the psychological dependence. And the psychological dependence feeds off of that physical dependence. And that's when a person perceives that they're not able to function in the absence of a particular medication. And we find that when people do start to experience that physical withdrawal, um, that starts to reinforce that message. And so you have a patient who's experienced withdrawal before when they've stopped their medications cold turkey for whatever reason. That's such a powerful experience. It's a strong physical experience. But then they link it in their mind that this is what pain looks like without opioids. And so it's a strong linkage in their mind that drives the psychological dependence where they perceive, if I don't have my opioids, this is what my life is going to look like. And so it requires a lot of education to help patients understand that, no, that's what withdrawal looks like 
but that's not what um, your pain looks like underneath. And then lastly, when we get to addiction, so psychological dependence, physical dependence, tolerance, just the presence of those by themselves doesn't necessarily constitute addiction, right? We look and we define something as being an addictive issue when a person continues to take the medication or continues to take the substance despite the presence of adverse outcomes in their life or when they go to extreme measures to get the particular substance. So for example, I saw a lady who she took a hammer to her hand and she slammed it so she could go to the ER and she could get opioid medication. Right? That's an example of addictive behaviors. Um, you know, people who continue to take medication despite adverse outcomes, a person who gets a DUI because they were um, intoxicated on their medications, um, people who've had family issues, um, spouses leave them, things along those lines related to their medication use, um, these are all signs that addiction may be present. But it's important to differentiate these terms because if addiction is present, the treatment pathway that you use with a patient is going to be different. So if a person does have an underlying addiction disorder, you want to make sure that that's being appropriately treated. Right? Addiction is its own separate disease, and we need to make sure that that's being treated concurrent with whatever pain issue the person has. Right? And so in that case, the most appropriate pathway is medication-assisted treatment. And there's a, there's a misconception that medication-assisted treatment is basically somebody who's got addiction, and so you give them Suboxone. Therefore, I've given medication to assist with treatment of their substance use disorder. But the assistance part is actually behaviorally-based therapies. The medication is a Suboxone or the other drug that you use, but the assistance is that therapy. And if you're missing that behavioral component, they're really not getting medication-assisted therapy. Um, but this is what's indicated if you find that somebody does have an underlying addiction issue. But if not, right, and this is what I would say that we see a lot of times in, in our practice, there are a lot of folks who get labeled as having an addiction or something along those lines. But what I find is more of these folks, they just have poorly managed pain, um, that they've just become more, uh, they have a biomedical focus on their pain, not a biopsychosocial, and they've just developed a strong dependence on their medications, both physical and psychological, um, and they have a high level of tolerance, um, but it's not necessarily a frank addiction. And so in that case, we try to engage in more interdisciplinary treatment to try to help patients develop a broader set of resources to help with managing that underlying pain condition. And I'm not going to go over that slide. So again, we mentioned that that interdisciplinary approach should focus on these different domains of care. But what we find, unfortunately, that oftentimes happens is that treatment fails to do that, right? The treatment fails to focus on the entire person and incorporate all the different factors that may be feeding into it. And it focuses just on the medical aspects of their care. Why do you think that is? Everybody looks down, it's like, oh crap. Yeah, it's the interactive part of the discussion, right? Resource is a big part of it, right? But also, yeah, in the blue. Money. Money, right? So money is a part of it, but also effort, right? Effort, like, think about it from a patient perspective. So a patient who has a, has a pain condition, right? And they're told that, okay, well, you're going to have to go and work with somebody, and you're going to have to work on changing your thought processes, or you're going to have to work on moving parts of your body that hurt. You know, or you can take this pill, and you have to swallow it with water. right? Which one's easier? Right? We all tend to take the path of least resistance, and so it's less effortful. Right? So even from a patient perspective, it's easier to focus on that. But also, more often than not, patients are used to thinking about pain from an acute modality. Right? And so they kind of look at pain from, well, if I take these medications, most often when we have pain, typically like the acute pain, the pain goes away. You have, some, you have a headache, you take medication, eventually the headache goes away. People are accustomed to thinking about their pain in that framework. And so they look at their chronic pain in that same fashion, but unfortunately that's not going to work out well. So there are a number of different reasons. I mean, that, you know, that's just a couple of things that we talked about, but there's a litany of different reasons why. Uh, oftentimes, the, the care ends up focusing just on that medical component. But what starts to happen when we do that, that's where we start to see the evolution of the issues such as tolerance, dependence, and addiction, when the care just focuses on that one biomedical component. And then with prescription opioids, you know, we know that approximately 3 million Americans met criteria for opioid abuse or dependence, which was a fourfold increase from 1999. Um, I think in 2014, they found that 60% of overdose deaths were attributed to opioids, and 80% of new heroin users initiated their substance use disorders by first misusing prescribed medications. But I think 
you know, we can always kind of hear about some of those things, but what I think is always more staggering is looking at some of these stats that came out from uh, Health and Human Services. In a given day in the United States, there are about 5,700 individuals who misuse prescription opioids for the first time, and there's an estimated $1.38 billion in economic cost on a daily basis in the U.S. related to prescription opioids, and then 116 opioid-related fatalities a day, which means over the course of this talk that Dr. Ha and I are giving today, four people in this country will have died related to prescription overdose death. Right? And so that's just a very scary figure to think about. So the opioid crisis was declared a public health emergency, and there's a five-point strategy that was recommended by Health and Human Services, one of which included better pain management. Right? So this is a, a crisis, but in this lies an opportunity to try to help our patients with managing this condition. So in pain psychology, what we tend to focus on with the behavioral components are a wide range of different things. You know, I'm not going to, I had a talk earlier this week where I, I spent a bit more time going over all the different components of what we go over in pain psychology, so I won't go over all the nuances of these different things, but I do want to specifically talk about the cognitive behavioral model and how this applies to medication use itself. So the cognitive behavioral model simply says that it's a linear model that says that in any kind of situation, we have some sort of interpretation of the situation that leads to our physical, emotional, and behavioral outcomes. Right? And it says that how we feel emotionally, what's going on physiologically within our body, and uh, what behaviors we engage in aren't determined by a situation, but rather our cognitive appraisal of that particular situation. And so in the case of medications, right, let's say that a patient wakes up with a pain flare, significant flare in their pain. If they think to themselves, this pain's never going to end, the day is ruined, I need to take more medications. Right? If that's their thought processes, then Consequently, emotionally, they're probably going to feel some sadness, some anger, some anxiety. They may behaviorally overextend themselves, and then they may reach for more medications. But if they're not engaging in appropriate pain coping skills, not using other behavioral management tools, um, they're likely going to just continue to repeat this vicious cycle where their pain continues to worsen, their thoughts get more polarized, it feeds more of this medication overuse behavior. Right? And so this is where we start to see the evolution of some of the different problems with medication use. The problem is a, a behavior, but that behavior is shaped by thought processes. We'll hear our patients say, well, I did it because of my pain, right? They're attributing it to the situation, but the reality is it's not the pain, it's the thought processes about the pain that drive that behavior. And so what we do in cognitive behavioral therapy when we're specifically looking at it in terms of um, the medication use and the medication use patterns is targeting the thought processes that drive that behavior and trying to help patients develop healthier pro thought processes that lead to healthier behaviors that aren't just medication-based. So in the last couple of minutes, I'm going to just talk a little bit about some, some of the data that's out there about these multidisciplinary programs and talk specifically about our program that we have at Stanford. So there's been data that shows that uh, weaning people off these medications can be effective, again, provided that you provide other tools. And so there's a lot of people who say, well, you know what, I don't believe that patients' function can improve if we take them off these medications. But you know, in a large study involving patients who participated in a cognitive behaviorally-based program, they found that they're able to wean people off their medications. And the people who are on opiates versus people who are not on opiates, both groups showed similar gains in, uh, pain, in um, uh, pain severity and depression and a lot of other psychological functioning, both at the conclusion of the program and several months follow-up. Now, the people who are on opiate medication had higher pain severity and depression at the start of the program, but again, both groups had similar improvements over the course of time. And there's another study that had a larger, larger end that had similar results. So I'm going to take the last couple of minutes to talk about a program that we have at Stanford um, just to give you guys a sense of how we do this uh, on the inpatient basis. And this is, I recognize that this isn't a resource that all people have, um, but it is a resource that is available to people. We've had many patients who fly in from out of state to participate in this program, but also to give you a sense of what you might be able to try to incorporate on your own in an outpatient basis. So basically in this inpatient program, all the admissions are planned. And we usually bring patients in who are on high doses of opiate medication who are either looking to come completely off or we reduce their opiate medication significantly. Um, we have very few admission or, um, uh, reasons why people cannot be admitted. Basically, they can't be actively homicidal or suicidal for obvious reasons. I don't want them to kill me. 
Um, second thing is uh, they can't have a primary addiction disorder, right? Because again, addiction is a separate disease and we wanna make sure that they're getting the appropriate treatment for that. Um, and the last thing is they just have to be open to what we have. They don't have to believe that it'll work. And I actually, most patients, I don't expect them to believe that anything that we have will work because skepticism should be a normal thing. I think it's our job when they're in the program to help them see that there's a different pathway to manage their pain. But what we do is every single day that the patient's in the program, they have daily sessions with myself, with physical therapy, with occupational therapy, and we try to minimize the role of medications. But what we do is we convert their opioid medications to methadone equivalent, and we give it to them in a dosage-blinded pain cocktail. And what this is where they get 20 cc's of sorbitol syrup, and mixed in there is methadone. And they get it at set times during the day. It's either two times a day or three times a day. And the patient is blinded to how much medication that they're getting. Um, they always know what drug is in their cocktail, but they don't know how much. And what this does is this allows us to eliminate that sense of human expectation, right? Because if a, if a patient is taking medications, if they have a strong psychological dependence on their drugs, and the nurse gives them five pills of medication X in the morning, and at noontime they come in and they give them two pills of that medication, the patient's naturally going to think, oh, no, this is going to be a terrible day. You know, I can tell that my pain's just going to get worse. And all of that psychological arousal can actually lead to their pain getting worse, but it has nothing to do with the pharmacology, but more to do with their anxiety and stress. So by blinding the patient to the changes, we eliminate any contribution that that anxiety has, but it also allows us to make more aggressive changes with their medications as a result of that. But we can go up, down, or make no changes in their cocktail from one dose to the next. Uh, but it's an extremely useful tool. And so particularly if you guys work with compounding pharmacies, things along those lines, you may choose to look and see if you have a patient who has a difficult time with weaning their medications, trying to do something similar. And we've done that as well on the outpatient basis of having somebody do that. It's a little bit more challenging on an outpatient basis. Usually you might have a family member who assists with picking up the medication and they um, you know, have to cover up you know, the, the label that says how much drug is in the uh, cocktail. But if you have a patient who's motivated um, who does not have a primary addiction disorder, um, you'll find that it's amazing how compliant they'll be with that process. But what we found uh, with patients who go through this is uh, similar outcomes as what other programs have found. That um, we find that mood states improve, uh, clinically and statistically significant reduction in depression. Uh, we found that pain, pain levels improved. Um, and we also found on the profile of mood states, um, goodness, this is moving very fast, Profile Moon States looks at several different continuums, and we found uh, statistically significant changes in a number of these different continuums, all of them except for anger and hostility, and all of these moved in the directions that we'd expect in terms of lowered affective distress, higher levels of functionality. Um, and with all of this, again, it's by taking away these medications, and we do this average length of stay is about seven, or seven to 10 days, and we have patients participate, again, in daily PT, psych, and OT. So we're replacing their medications with these different behavioral tools, um, and we find that the patients do tend to fare better. So similar results as to what other studies have found. So in an outpatient application, what you want to try to do is provide your patients with as much education as possible, right? Um, if you're going to have a dialogue with your patient about opioid reduction, you know, you don't want to just have that dialogue and make that reduction the very first time that you have that discussion, right? You want to first open the idea to the patients and start that communication, give them other tools that they can use uh, to help facilitate that. I appreciate that many folks don't work in a community where you have pain psychologists and resources available to you, so take advantage of resources that are online. You know, American Chronic Pain Association has a wealth of different resources online that are free that do a really good job of helping patients understand interdisciplinary approaches to pain management. Um, and also, uh, if you have questions, um, I've got a list of different um, books, websites, YouTube videos, things along those lines uh, that I'd be happy to share with you guys as well if you're in underserved areas that you can use to help facilitate education for patients. But with that, we're out of time. So we'll go ahead and take uh, questions if you have them. Do you want to raise that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think it's frustrating... Um, it's frustrating as, a, as an epidemiologist. I mean, the first couple of slides I showed you, yeah, that's the truth. It's the illicit fentanyl. Um, but, you know, I think the policymakers need to be educated. Their knowledge in terms of uh, when looking at our advocacy efforts, you know, their knowledge in the field of pain medicine is, is, very, um, is very minimal. 
So I think, yeah, as a group, we need to have a better voice out there to explain that we're not necessarily part of the problem. But then again, remember that purple line, it's not really shifting down, because theoretically, if it was all an illicit uh, fentanyl problem, that purple line would be going down. It's not necessarily going down. It's actually still creeping up. And so that's why, kind of in a number scale, we still have a prescription opioid problem. It's being overtaken. And I think it'll be interesting to see how those lines shift in the next five years. I wouldn't necessarily get to the point where I'd say that law enforcement or others need to get involved with saying we have to do that. But I think certainly um, when we're dealing with chronic pain, trying to employ that biopsychosocial model and incorporating these other things earlier on in care um, rather than at the very end. And you know, the reality is some of these different injection therapies and such, there is a place for those, but some of the outcomes may even improve if some of the other behavioral components are incorporated with those treatments as well. And so it's not a matter of either or, but more of you know, all of these things uh, integrated, but in a, in a thoughtful manner. The gentleman right behind you. Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, it's it, certainly when a person hears that, they might feel invalidated. They, oh, you think that this is all in my head. You're sending me to a psychologist. But I think just, again, it comes to education, helping the patient understand that, you know, regardless of what the cause of your pain is, different stressors and different variables affect that. And so when looking at the whole person, we want to make sure that we're addressing all these different variables to help with managing your pain. And just, just trying to help with that education over the course of time. And it's the same thing with, um, as like with the medication tape. You don't introduce it and then say, here's your referral. But start having that dialogue earlier on so that you kind of plant the seed and let it continue to grow. Um, you know, I appreciate that, you know, the time that you have in your sessions. You only have so much time that you get to spend with your patients. And that's why, you know, just kind of drop some of these different ideas, give them some of the websites to review on their own, and then say, you know, real quickly, you know, while you're typing something in the computer for their next visit, just ask them, you know, last time I had asked you to look up that website, did you look at it? What did you learn about it? And that way it's, it's not as stigmatized in that capacity. But I know that we have to probably leave this room. Dr. Hahn, I can stand outside to take additional questions that folks have. But thank you very much for your time.